0: Amen. Good morning, church family. And for those of you visiting with us for the first time or the first time in a long time, I want to welcome you and and ask that you turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. We are working through the gospel of Luke. And this morning we're going to look at this narrative about Jesus uh, in the New Testament. And as we are flipping there, I just want to kind of give an introduction. As you can see from the title, we are changing our benchmark. Thank you. Appreciate that, Michael. Changing our benchmark, right? What's a benchmark? Benchmark in ancient times was used as a point of reference to level for the foundation. Uh, Today, in modern terms, we talk, if you're from the business world, there's a lot of talk of benchmarks. Benchmarks are used to talk about how well stocks performs, or achievement of certain goals. It's a reference point, a focal point by which you are striving towards. And what we're going to see in the passage today is that a reference point will be changed. Jesus here is breaking into history and changing the benchmark that we're all used to. With that in mind, let us now turn our attention to the Word of God. If it's not in front of you, it's in the bulletin or... Uh, it'll be on the screens beside me. Hear the word of God, church. Luke 13, beginning in verse 10. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, You are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Amen. May God have blessed you to the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but tell me the rest of it, church. The word of our God endures forever. Okay. Would you rather make $50,000 a year or $100,000 a year? This was a question put to a survey. But now, it's not as simple as just picking one or the other. Let me give you the rest of the caveat here because you may be surprised at the results. The caveat is this. If you choose to work for $50,000 a year, you will go to a working environment where you will be the top earner. And everyone else will make $30,000 or less than you. But if you choose to take the hundred thousand dollars you will be the lowest earner in that environment everyone will make a minimum of three hundred thousand dollars and you will be at the bottom of the barrel making and earning uh, every year which one would you rather have the working environment where you're at the bottom but still make hundred thousand dollars or the working environment where you're at the top but it's not as much money well Would you be surprised to know that 50% of people would rather make $50,000 and be the top earner in their work environment than make $100,000 and be at the bottom? It's not that surprising to me. One thing I've noticed, I have been uh, blessed by God, and you can ask Becky this. We've been in a lot of different ministry situations. One situation we were in, in Floyd's Knobs was a very affluent area. And I think that we actually had the opportunity to minister to one person in the 1% that was there. And here's what I've noticed People that are rich, there's always at least one person just a little richer than they are, right? Yes, I have a yacht, but their yacht has a helicopter pad with a helicopter on it. i got to go a little more. i got to do a little better than what I'm doing now, right? Not a world I live in, but a world that some do. Becky was babysitting one time from one family, and she was, the kid was asking Becky uh, what kind of an airplane that we owned. <laughs> To give you an idea of the type of folks we used to work with when we lived in the Kentuckiana area. And of course, you know, Becky smiled and politely said, we don't own an airplane. And uh, the mother said, yeah, if you did own an airplane, that'd be the church of embezzlement, wouldn't it, right? So so we're not in that category or bracket. It's really about your benchmark, right? If your benchmark is just getting a yacht, you made it. But if it's a yacht with a helipad, you're not there. There's always another benchmark to... Achieve or slide up too. Uh, there is a podcast, and I love the name of this podcast. It's called The Happiness Lab. Isn't that funny? The Happiness Lab podcast. And it's ran by this professor out of Yale. And she did a fascinating study about how happy Olympic gold medalists were when they won their gold medal. So you have three gold medals. And if you're not an Olympic watcher, there's three gold medals. Gold is number one. Silver is number two. And bronze is number three who was the happiest you think of those three? It's obviously gold, right? You are the top best Olympian ever. In my opinion, what I think would make the Olympics a whole lot more fun to watch is if instead of taking the top athletes that were training for it every year, it was like a lottery draft of people from the countries that were completely out of shape. I think it would be a lot more entertaining. You just got randomly selected and you had to go to the Olympics, you know what I mean, and try to place. Anyway, you can think about that later. But All right, um, so... Who do you think was the next happiest with their medal, silver or bronze? What do you think in the study? What's that? Bronze. Yes, bronze. That's right. And what's the reason that a bronze Olympian is more happy than a silver Olympian? It's, yeah, it's their benchmark, right? They, they can go home and they can tell everyone, I won a medal in the Olympics. They got bronze, right? And they're happy about that. But the person who got silver, if you've ever watched it on TV, there's always a smirk on their face because they were inches from being the best and the, the most coveted athlete in that discipline, right? They they just the reason they're not as happy is because they just missed their benchmark, right? The bronze made it and they didn't. All right, so it's not so much the events that happen to you but how you measure those events on your benchmark. I have an illustration from my household. Depending on how this goes, I may need somewhere to spend the afternoon and take a nap because I didn't ask permission to use this one. So somebody may have to give me a couch later today. But anyhow, all right. I just recently went to Nashville for the Tennessee Baptist Convention. If you don't know what that is, it's basically a network, a family of Tennessee Baptists all throughout the state. We get together once a year in November right before Thanksgiving. And we uh, talk about missions, and we talk about missions giving. There's a, there's a conference for pastors. It's supposed to be a time of encouragement, and it's a two-day business meeting, and there's no way to sugarcoat that. That's what it is, right? But anyhow. So I come back from Nashville, and when I left, my wife and children were going to go downtown because Elizabethan was having this, like, Christmas Oprah house thing for all the little cute shops down Elk. You know what I'm talking about, That like, all those little shops there? And uh, they had gone in. One of our church members, the Davenports, they keep a... A booth in an antique shop and Becky and my family had uh, they had stumbled into my kids and Becky had stumbled into the Davenport's uh, booth and there was this bag that was there okay right we'll come back to that in just a minute so I come home from Nashville and uh, and we haven't got the Christmas stuff yet up yet we're a couple weeks behind and we started with like a couple of christmas boxes maybe four or five when we first got married like totes and has grown every year the amount of christmas stuff in the barn Uh, we thought we had 14 but actually counted them it has grown now to 18 totes some of which are this long i call those the back killers because they always have just enough space to fill them up so that when you pick them up, they're right at the limit for what one person can, can lift by themselves, but then you just pay the price for them later. The back killers always give me every year. So uh, I, I don't want any more totes. I don't want any more. I feel like 18 is enough, right? Uh, I don't want any more. Well, uh, I come back from Nashville, and there's this bag, sitting this new christmas decoration sitting in the entryway and immediately my and becky doesn't know this happened because i haven't shared this till now this is really to make me look bad this illustration not to make her and the children look bad immediately this was my thought process how much does that weigh where is that going in the 18 totes that are out in the back how many times am I going to, ha- how, how badly is this going to hurt my back to move in and out, in and out, in and out every year? That was my thinking process. So I had, I had two roads before me, right? Remember Robert Frost years ago? Two roads in the yellow wood began to emerge. One where I became angry that there was more stuff to put out and to put up and more pain for my back and more Advil that had to be taken or whatever it is that we take there at the house. I just take them by the handful this time of year when I'm decorating, Right? Or, I try to figure out what's actually going on here, right? I could have just said, what is this? Another Christmas decoration? Have you lost your mind? Are 18 men's not enough? What are you thinking? We're going to have to buy a whole other shed just for Christmas decorations. You know, and I could have just really made this thing a big, ugly, nasty thing. And so I'm thinking about this, and I'm looking at this bag, and all this is going through my mind. And I thought, but I might not fully understand what happened here, right? So maybe I should just ask, honey... Where, where did this still tell me about this Christmas decoration here tell me what what's going on with this you know where did it come from she said you're not gonna believe this we went to the Boris booth and uh, I saw it there and and she said I saw it, I thought it was really cute and I said to Charlene I said I love this bag it's like a little looks like a grain bag or something like that and somebody had imprinted joy to the world on it. it's it got this cute little I don't know Christmasy cute stuff on it whatever and uh And it's like this big and about that wide, you know. I said, oh, okay. She said, yeah, and I, she said, I looked at Charlene and I said, I just can't, I love this. It's so cute. My, Travis would kill me if I brought this home. We have got way too much Christmas stuff as it is. To which point I was thinking, you're correct. That's right. I would not be happy to have more Christmas stuff come in. Uh, So we're, you know, when you're at 16 years of marriage, you kind of get on the same wavelength, right, with a lot of things. So Adeline overhears this. Conversation with Becky and Charlene. And Adeline has some of her own money. Oh, you know where it's going, don't you? So Adeline asks to purchase it. So she does. They load it up, take it home. Becky puts it in her bedroom. And then later when Becky's cleaning or doing something that Becky does, Adeline takes it and puts it in our bedroom and puts a note on it and says, to mom, Merry Christmas, love Adeline. Right? Now just think if I would have done my first selfish self centered reaction and blew up about that bag when I walked in the entryway without having that information. right It was the reaction to it, and that was all internal on my part. I had to sort of battle this out with myself well, in a similar fashion here, this is what 's happening in the text it 's not so much what is actually happening but the reaction to what is happening that we need to note here okay so first of all let's let 's begin to look at some of the principles that we see here. ...and some of the main points that we're going to get into. So if we can just rewind the passage back to the opening in verse 10, that would be wonderful. First of all, verse 10. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. This is not the main point of the text, but this is worth mentioning. Notice here what is not in this verse. There is nothing in here about, I'm not sure if we should go to church or the Sabbath... and the, to, the, ...to the gathering of God's people to worship or we shouldn't go... There's, there's no discussion by Jesus and the disciples of, well, if we do this, it'll be a domino effect, and then we can't do X, Y, and Z. The general default setting of Jesus is to be with God's people when they gather. One of the things I lament about shutting the church down... In some ways, I wish I had never done it, right? And I'll take full blame and responsibility for it. I thought I was doing what was right at the time. I think it inadvertently taught some people that the physical gathering together of God's people is not critical and important, but scripture says it is. It's a principle modeled in the life of Jesus, and we also see this in Hebrews. Don't forsake the gathering together of one another. Online don't count, right? It's not the same thing. It's better than nothing. But it's not the same thing, right? Don't get these things confused. So, Jesus' general default setting is to gather with God's people when they worship. The modern believable principle is what? When God's people have agreed to worship at the set time and set location, they come together and they worship, and that is the general default setting, okay? All right, moving on now to verse 11. So, we're in the temple, we're worshiping, it's the Sabbath. And behold, this word behold is a marker of something extraordinary that's about to happen. But what's funny is the placement of this phrase in verse 11. There was a woman who was held who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. This woman, Luke tells us she's bent over and can't fully straighten herself. So she's down on her back somehow, some way, much like I am after Christmas decorations, right? This is sort of how I... Move around the house for a couple of days until I lumber and get loose and my back comes back to me. But she is down like this for 18 years. Two things that we can observe when people are physically disabled and they're gathering amongst us. This is just another kind of quick observation off the text. You do with it what you want. First of all, when someone has a debilitating disability like this, we are quick to help them at first. But as time goes on in the body, we don't see them in that need anymore. We don't see it anymore. At 18 years, chronic illness is harder to deal with in the body, I've noticed as a pastor, than somebody who's just sick for a short period of time and recovers. So there's bad news in that regard. But there is kind of good news in another sense. Uh, Those that do have disabilities that are in the church... As time goes on, sometimes the church doesn't see those disabilities anymore. And they're just able to serve and be one and the same as everybody else. So it's kind of a double-edged sword that is there. I think she has gotten to a point where she's just sort of blended with this debilitating physical and apparently had a tinge of a spiritual um, binding there. Verse 12, uh, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed From your disability now, before I get into verse, uh, the next verse here, I want to make one quick observation about this woman. She is living in the framework of Genesis three, in the fall of man. You know, there doesn't—if you'll notice—in the first three verses we read, there is no indication that this woman called out to Jesus in this passage. There's no indication that she tried to touch Jesus. There's no indication that she even necessarily believed Jesus would heal him. There's not really an indication that she even knew who Jesus was. In fact, if you think about it, if she is stooped over like this, like she has a bed, and she can't hardly look up, what's she looking at all the time? She's looking at the ground most of the time, right? She's affected by the fall. All of the human body is affected by the fall. Back, heart's. Livers, lungs, brains, all of that affected by the fall. And Jesus here is is—Jesus um, here is setting us up for something big that's about to happen here. Calls to her over and he says to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. Now, some of you ladies, when Jesus said that, there's something in the you that welled up, right? If I went home today at lunch and I said to Beck, Woman, make me some lunch, right? Would Becky be inclined to make me lunch or would she be inclined to throw lunch at me? I think it would be the latter, right? Uh, But you've got to remember, you've been marinating in about five or six decades. Well, since the 1960s, you've been marinating in feminism. And it has caused a lot of nuances and issues in the church and in your hearing, you have a cultural barrier to overcome with that, right? Uh, they weren't marinating in six years of femin- six decades of feminism at this point in time. She did not take this kind of address. Jesus is not giving her any kind of a condescending address when he does this. He addresses his own mother at the wedding, right? We remember that. Jesus says, woman, my time has not yet come. Uh, you know, I just don't recommend the men of my church talk to your wives or any other woman in the church that way. I don't think it'll be read quite the same way as it was in the first century. You're about to be freed from your disability, verse 13. And look at this, what he says. He laid his hand on her, and immediately she was made straight. Now, I usually love the ESV, but I'm not in love with this translation. Uh, this verb here for made straight, come it really should be loosed. She was loosed. It's loueo is the verb. It's the first verb that every Greek student learns in seminary. You have to learn that verb. You have to parse that verb. You go to sleep with loueo. You wake up with loueo. Like you live loueo. It's like you're. And the and the verb is most normally used to describe an archer who is loosing an arrow. Loueo means to loose. Okay. So the arrow is the the bow is bent, and when you loueo it, it goes back to being straight. Right. The string was bent back to straight. Uh, In this passage here, this is the verb. Her back is bent over. She is, Jesus puts his hand on her and she goes back to straight just like the string that is bent on an arrow. And then notice what follows Jesus' miraculous healing. She glorified God. Now, the reason I'm not in love with this translation is because this verb, or rather kind of a compound verb that's used here... It is used multiple times throughout this chapter. If you will look at your Bible, you'll see in verse 13, it talks about loosing the donkey so that it can go and get a drink to straighten up what had been tied so that it can go and get the drink that it wants. It also is a similar translation uh, in other parts of the New Testament. Uh, Paul, there's another word here that is used. He says, I've loosed you from Uh, This And uh, it was a weakness that she had. It reminds me of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, I will glory in my weakness. She's bent over and stopped. And Jesus releases her, looses her, and changes her view, right? If you've spent 18 years like this, and then all of a sudden you're like this, you just had a paradigm shift, right? You could now look at people eyeball to eyeball and see what they're saying and what, she is, what is being told to her and people's reaction. So she looks and she sees Jesus. And what is the right and appropriate reaction when you behold the Savior face to face? It's what? Glorifying God, isn't it? She has the appropriate, correct, right response when Jesus looses her back. She sees Him face to face and she begins to glorify Him. She is healed from whatever spiritual and physical torment that bent her over like an arrow, uh, like a bow that's not been released yet, is now free. But there's another character here. There's another individual in the story. Who's that? The ruler of the synagogue. Is he happy about this? Somebody just got released. Somebody just got loosed. Somebody just got released from 18 years of pain. Can you imagine the Depression if you had to look at the floor for 18 years? I mean, unless you really like looking at floors. I don't know how many people are really in that category. The ruler of the synagogue, he had a different benchmark, right? Totally different benchmark. Jesus is bring the kingdom in, make it clear, do these signs and works so the kingdom can be seen more clearly in the work of the Father. What's the benchmark of of the leader of the Pharisees here? His benchmark is the law. Right? And while I have read the Old Testament and I have read Leviticus, and I don't see any whatsoever laws about what days you can or can't heal people written in Leviticus or anywhere, he apparently wants to take a principle and apply it. Right? Look at this. The ruler of the, the synagogue, uh, indignant, angry because Jesus. So, who's the anger directed at in this passage? It's directed at Jesus. So, who should he talk to? Jesus, right? Who's he talked to in this passage? The people of the synagogue. <laughs> that makes sense. This guy must have been Baptist, right? I'm mad at you. I'm going to talk to everybody else in the room and not you, right? That <laughs> he addresses everybody, right? Everybody but the person he's supposed to address with his anger. He, he addresses them. There are six days in which one ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the sanctuary. I just picture this guy like the Grinch, right, on the Christmas movie, The Grinch, Don't anyone in the worship of the house of the Lord have any joy whatsoever? All joy has been suspended permanently, right? He doesn't want any joy in the house of God, any freedom from sin, any hint of the kingdom that is there, right? He is wrapped up in the law. He's wrapped up in the law. He can only see what? He can only see violation. Luke's doing a beautiful thing here, and I hope you see this. So the woman is bent over physically and staring at the ground. And this other individual that is here, physically his back is straight, but spiritually he is bent over in a worse condition than the woman that Jesus just healed. Because all he sees is the law as it was handed down and the application of the law. He is bent over double, just the same or worse than the woman that Jesus healed originally. You see here... (laughs) He's looking to the law, and what he sees here is his own self-righteousness. He's made the law so that his own self-righteousness can keep it. Our hearts can go quickly and easily to this place, like this religious leader. Now, I don't think in this service it's as big of a deal, but we talked more about this in the traditional service. It's harder for some folks that have been in Christ a long time, you know, one of my heroes in church revitalization is Mark Clifton. He's a great church revitalizer, church planter. And he talked about there was one Sunday where a guy was angry at the church he was working at. He was on staff and he was pastor of. He pulled Mark aside. He said, I can't believe people are bringing cell phones in the worship service. Pastor, you've got to stop this madness People's phones are ringing during worship. It's distracting. And what the man wants, and this kind of dates the illustration, doesn't it? Because none of you probably think about a cell phone entering a worship space now, do you? But there was a time, and I'm old enough to remember, when this was a hotly debated topic in churches about whether or not cell phones should be allowed in because churches are oftentimes laggers with technology not on the front end. And Mark Clifton, you know, he knew what the guy wanted. He wanted the guy to stand up. He wanted Mark to stand up in front of the church and say, All right, no more cell phones in the service. Leave them in your cars. We'll have a basket out here in the back. You drop them in the basket. Don't bring your cell phones in the services anymore. Not allowed, right? What did Mark Clifton do? He didn't do that. Here's what he said. He said, you know, I'm yet to see a cell phone enter a sanctuary by itself. Usually, when a cell phone enters a sanctuary, it's being held by a hand or it's in the pocket of an individual. And that is attached To a person that Jesus died for on the cross. And so I would rather not come down very hard and harshly about something that's not explicitly addressed in the Bible and make sure that people hear the gospel that may be far from the Lord and just the only issue is they bring a cell phone in. It's the same thing with coffee into it. You know, what makes a building sacred? Listen, it's not the building that's sacred. It's the worship of God that's sacred. Okay, it's not buildings. If I showed you how church buildings were made, you'd be horrified. There are probably packets of cigarettes and all kinds of trash in between the brick and the block of this wall. I would lay hundred-dollar bills down to tell you each one of these walls is probably full. There may even be beer bottles in the wall. I don't know. They put all kinds of crazy stuff behind the wall. There's nothing sacred about a building. A building is a building. It's the people and the worship of God and the dwelling in the heart that is sacred. Okay, a dear friend. He ministered to a, in a church in in uh, the Hickory, North Carolina area, and he had grown this ministry by reaching kids in the city there to about fifty to seventy five kids coming in. But these were unchurched kids. Never, not they. They never weren't transferring from another church. They were kids that were coming and never been to church. Didn't have a church. They came in with straight bill caps, and, you know. They didn't have clothes on like the people that went to church there. They didn't act or talk like the people that went there. Probably didn't even smell like them either. You know, just completely different. And that went on for a few months. And then one one glorious Wednesday after the youth worship, he noticed the personnel committee of the church in the back, all of their arms crossed like this and a frowny face on their face. And when he was done, they did this motion. And every pastor knows. This is about to be a wonderful conversation, right? This is going to be something to just warm the cockles of your heart. That's the little valves in your heart, cockles. I had a Greek teacher that always said that. They said, got him in the room, here's what they said to him. Now listen, it's bad enough that my kids have to go to school with these kids you brought in here. Why should my kids have to deal with these kids here at church? You, You need to do something. You get rid of these. We we want kids like our kids here, not kids not like our kids, right? He didn't agree with them. They let him go and fired him from that church. Are you really going to get upset about straight billed baseball caps coming in here and pants being a little baggier or looser than they should have been? These kids are hearing the gospel, they were hearing the gospel. I think that's something we get better on this side, right? We get that. It's important here. But it's always about the heart. It's not about the form of the law. Uh, It's about the benchmark of grace, right? Isn't that what Jesus is dispensing here? Isn't he dispensing grace? He saw this woman in her image, and she was an image bearer of God. And every person on this planet... Every human being, they are worthy of respect and dignity and care and, the, and to hear the gospel. That should be a heartbeat that we have. He, he calls her here, if you'll notice in this rebuke, he calls her a, a daughter of Abraham, right? He says, you daughter of Abraham, this is important. There's a very interesting phrase here <clears throat> because Abraham carries the seed of promise, which is the, the line that Jesus will eventually come through. So he is saying to them, she is just as precious and as important as the, a part of the redemptive narrative and story as any who have been in the line. It's a, very, it's a big deal that Jesus calls her this. You know, he saw her here in this passage as a victim of Satan. You know, <clears throat> one of the benchmarks that we get backwards in the church too many times is people get mad at those who are in the bondage of sin and Satan? They get mad at the individual for being in that bondage of sin and Satan instead of being mad and upset with Satan and the bondage that they're in. You know, there's a lot of kind of major themes that move and work through this passage here. Um, you know, Jesus says here, You care more. ...about your donkey than you do this woman who is a, seed of, who is a sister of the Lion of Abraham. <clears throat> you care more about your beast of burden. And he says here, focusing on them to, to pick that as primary... ...over healing and helping those who are in desperate need of it here. Anytime Jesus shows up, I hope you're seeing this. When Jesus and the truth shows up, it creates tension... Right? Lots of us are, are a little bit too in love with peace and, and it never being an issue. But when, every time Jesus shows up, he's always drawing a line. You're either on his side or the other side. One line that he points out here, he makes it pretty clear. Uh, let's move on to verse 15. <clears throat> you hypocrites, don't you each care for your ox here? On the Sabbath, move on to 16 here. He, he points out and he says, Satan, he makes this right here. He says, This is a daughter of Abraham contrasted with Satan bounding her. So he's setting himself up against Satan. That's one theme that runs through this passage here, and I hope you see that this morning. Jesus here is setting himself over and against, and we're right back. This is beautiful because we're right back here full circle with Genesis chapter 3, the promise of the seed of Abraham, where the serpent will strike the heel, and what will happen? The head will be crushed right? Jesus is saying here, I am the heel that will crush Satan, right? I'm going to do it here. This is what is being echoed here in their minds here. And then one last theme that we see running through this, and I hope you see this today. And that is simply this. It is God's incredible compassion for human beings. God's incredible compassion for human beings. Not merely a bent-over woman, but a daughter of Abraham, right? How had she been treated in the synagogue? I guarantee you nobody had ever called her that in 18 years. I just about guarantee you that. Nobody had ever gave her a title bestowed like that. He has great compassion for all those that are around him. The law is good right? That Pharisee who's bent over double and needs to be loose from the law. The law is good. It reflects God's character, but the law doesn't save us. It merely shows us our shortcoming and what we need. And here in this passage, we need Christ. We need him to crush the head of the serpent. We need to be like this woman. We were bound and broken and helpless. And we need Christ to step in in a miraculous and amazing way. Like the ruler, we are selfish and self-righteous and self-serving. Didn't you hear that in my thinking process when I came home from Nashville? How self-righteous and self-serving I was in that thinking. But we're all like that, aren't we? If we had to truly be honest, we're all a touch like that. You know, if you're here today and you're not living glorifying Jesus and you're not living in the joy of knowing Christ, I would submit to you, you have one of two problems after examining a text like this. The first problem is simply this. You're a guy or a gal who is living as if they don't need Jesus. And here's how you got there. You say, well, I live better than so-and-so. And And usually it's a comparison to somebody who's a leader in the church or somebody who's even a pastor, right? Right? I live better than Pastor Travis. If that Listen, if I'm your benchmark, that's a sorry benchmark, right? <laughs> I'm telling you, it is a sorry benchmark. You know, you, you may pick the things you don't like about me out and say, I'm, I'm better than Travis, and you may very well be. And I'm just glad that you have the limited knowledge of me that you have, right? We're all probably a whole lot worse than we ever let anybody else truly know. The truth's always far worse than that. But what's your problem there? You've made your benchmark other people, haven't you? What's the benchmark here? It's Jesus Christ, isn't it? Isn't it his mercy? Isn't it his love? Isn't it his healing? Isn't his perfection the benchmark? Or you're in the second group here. You've looked around here today and you've thought, I'm not much like these church people. Why? I struggle with things that I'm not even sure these people know exist as problems. Why? I I don't... I don't, know that, I don't know that I'm a good candidate to be saved. I'm, I'm a really horrible person. What's the problem there? The problem there is, again, you're looking at what? Your benchmark is other people, isn't it? You're thinking other people are better than you. In the first illustration, you thought you were better than other people. In the second illustration, other people are better than you. And what do you need to do? You need to do the same thing that the first one needs to do. You need to to raise your eyes up off the floor. You need to look in the precious face of Jesus Christ and see the true benchmark. See the benchmark that came for you because He loves you. He has compassion for you. He wants to see you leoed. He wants to see you loosened. He wants to see you from a bent over, self-righteous, broken, sad position to a position of being straight Looking and beholding him and praising and glorifying him. Won't you do that this morning? Let's play. Let's pray. Jesus, lift our eyes from our failure. God, lift our eyes from our own efforts of salvation. Lord, help us to battle, to battle this self righteousness internally, to battle the benchmark of wanting to make others the standard. When it was always you, Lord. It was always you. From the beginning of creation in Adam and Eve, you were always the benchmark, God. Lord, save us today. If there's anyone here today that they're bit over double in the transgressions and sins of their life, they're far from you, they can't even lift their face up to see you. Lord, won't you touch their heart and their lives? Won't you loose them, God? Won't you save us, God? Save us. From ourselves. We thank you for this. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. This morning, you've heard the gospel proclaimed. You felt the Lord pull you in your heart. A that heart that's been over double in self righteousness, a heart that's been over and hard, a heart that's been hurt a lot. Did you feel God pulling that heart this morning? Won't you give your life and your heart to the only place? that can take what the world and yourself has contorted and bent in so many ways and distorted and make it straight and make it beautiful. Won't you do that this morning as we sing in response to the gospel preach. Please stand.